I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On In today's show. <laughs> <laughs> On today's show, Donald Trump asks if Mitch McConnell has a death wish. Republican Senate candidates are polling better. The House is still in play. And later, we sit down with our old friend and colleague Cody Keenan to talk Obama speechwriting and his new book, Grace. A uh, few quick housekeeping notes before we start. Uh, Tommy. Mm-hmm. You've got a new series. Oh, I do. That's right. Tell us all about it. Yeah, I've been working on a, on a, uh, a limited series for a few weeks with a guy named Roger Bennett, who hosts uh, a fantastic soccer podcast called Men and Blazers. And we're going to talk about the 2022 World Cup, which is being held this year in Qatar. And that is uh, problematic for a lot of reasons. Uh, it was awarded based on rampant corruption up and down FIFA, yeah. uh, the body that governs international soccer. Uh, Qatar is a horrible place to live if you are a woman or uh, an LGBT person. And uh, it's uh, intolerable if you are a foreign worker who are the people who are building all the infrastructure that went into the games when they were awarded in 2010. So we're trying to figure out what do you do as a sports fan when the game you love has been corrupted by money and these autocrats, especially in the Gulf, that try to do something called sports washing, which is burnish their reputation by getting involved in international soccer. And what can we as fans do about it? What can players do about it? And what can clubs do about it? So it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's going to be uh, released on the Pod Save the World feed and the Men in Blazers feed. So check it out starting this Saturday. This Saturday? This Saturday. Excellent. And the trailer's out now. Everyone go check out the trailer. Trailer's out. Right on the Pod Save the World feed. It'll be fun. Also, uh, this is your last chance, everyone, to buy a pair of Crooked Carriuma shoes. Uh, you can order your favorite today in the Crooked store. And as always, a portion of the proceeds will go to Vote Riders, the leading organization focused on helping people navigate voter ID laws. Uh, we got two designs. They're both great. Uh, check it out at crooked.com slash kicks and grab your pair today. It's one of our best URLs we've done. Yeah, it's so simple. It's easy. Yeah. All right, let's get to the news. So one storyline of these midterms has been the uh, will they or won't they dynamic between Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell. Um, the latest chapter started... When Trump truthed, so many things start when Trump truths. He's really truthing a lot these days. He's truthing his ass off. All right, so Trump truthed that McConnell's support for the Democrats' continuing resolution to fund the government means that he has a death wish Mm -hmm. and, quote, must immediately seek help and advise from his China-loving wife, Coco Chow, uh, which is Trump's racist nickname for former Trump Transportation Secretary Elaine Chow. So McConnell and most Republicans uh, have said nothing in response, uh, though uh, Senator Rick Scott was asked about the comment uh, during the Sunday shows. Uh, Here's what he said. You're a member of the Senate GOP leadership. Are you okay with this? Well, look, I, I can never talk about, respond to why anybody else says what they said. But here's what is the way I looked at it is, I think, you know, what the president is saying is, you know, we've, there's been a lot of money spent over the last two years. Uh, we've got to make sure we don't keep caving to Democrats. It's causing unbelievable inflation and causing more and more debt. Um, as you know, you know, the president like, likes to give people nicknames. You can ask him how he came up uh, with the nickname. Uh, I'm sure he has a nickname for me. It's never, ever okay to be a racist. Um, um, it's, you know, look, I think you always have to be careful, you know, if you're in the public, you know, eye, how you, how you say things. You want to make sure you're inclusive. I hope no one is racist. I hope no one says anything that's inappropriate. Um, so I'm going to do everything I can. <laughs> do you like, uh, I know this is down the list here, but do you like the birds chirping in the background? I mean, <laughs> as he's just dissembling on live television. I, I do. Here's the thing. Look, I think it's sad based on this clip that I want Mitch McConnell to be murdered less than Rick Scott does. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's especially troubling because if, if someone does follow what Trump wants and Trump does want someone to try to kill Mitch McConnell, if that does end up happening, it's even worse for Rick Scott now because this clip will fucking exist. What a, he's got a silver tongue, though. No wonder they made him the spokesman for the so NRSC, smooth. you know? I so just, smooth. I, 
Did, did we put that at like 1.5x? I, I was going to say, like, Does again, he... this is low on the list of, of problems with that. But just like, yeah, Rick Scott, he should be the public face of the Republican Party. Just well, get him out more. But also just a no- I want I want more Rick Scott from the Republican Party. And just a quick note to Rick's staff. When the presumptive nominee and former president of your party threatens to kill the minority leader of your own party, you should probably prep that answer. Prep that answer. Just that, like th- a couple runs. Think that that might be coming. Might come up. That might be a question. Are you guys a little surprised that elected Republicans couldn't bring themselves to criticize their party's 2024 frontrunner for threatening their uh, Senate minority leader's life and calling his wife a racist slur or no surprise? Sadly, no. I think this all goes back to 2016 in the primary when we watched Marco Rubio flail around and try to make dick jokes and then Ted Cruz uh, called Trump a sniveling coward for criticizing his wife and then phone banked for him a few weeks later. So, I mean, like these guys have all decided just to never pick a public flight because they know Trump will go harder uh, and will never stop. Um, so look, McConnell doesn't care really probably about, he wants, doesn't care about defending his wife. He doesn't care about his honor or looking pathetic. He wants power and lobbyist checks and to support candidates that will help Senate Republicans. So no, I, I expect nothing from these guys. Love it. Why do you think they're being so quiet? What would have been the problem? Mitch McConnell saying, uh, no, I, I, I don't think that it was a good idea for the president to say that I have a death wish. And I don't like that. He called my wife a racist name. <laughs> you don't think that's a, you don't think what's going to happen then? Well, I, I feel like they've abandoned so the reason to do that, obviously, is because um, Trump's <laughs> reprehensible. And, and it's also uh, just, a, you know, the most natural thing, natural response when someone uh, threatens threatens your life. <laughs> threatens your, yeah, threatens your life. Threatens your life and, and calls your wife a racial racist Racial epithets name. at your yeah. family. Uh, yeah, you'd think. But um, look, I don't know if you've noticed, but Mitch McConnell's a pretty cynical guy. And I feel like if you're going to rationalize the amount of things these people have rationalized over the past six years, what's one more time? Uh, And, you know, they know that picking a fight with Trump, it won't it won't change Trump. It'll make the story bigger. And obviously they care more about getting back to focusing on bullshit crime related political attacks or immigration related political attacks or anti-trans related political attacks. Uh, They'd rather get back to that than have a news cycle Uh, about Trump and his awful rhetoric because they've sort of accepted that this is the status quo ante with Trump. They have no hope of changing it. And the only thing they're afraid of is being on the the losing end of it. I do like uh, the Washington Post uh, reported on this story and the way they described it was just perfect. The Post marked a further escalation in an increasingly strained relationship between the two Republican leaders. (laughs) I also, it's also like, uh, you know, he he did try to have Mike Pence hanged outside the Capitol. I know, I know. So they're sort of, you know, this is not, it's not, not a new escalation. Time. It's just that this is his natural resting place at this point. I mean, the, even, uh, though, the, <laughs> even the Wall Street Journal editorial board said they were concerned that someone might take Trump seriously and try to kill Mitch McConnell. Yeah. I mean, this is not a you know, so. right-wing uh, editorial board. <laughs> and not only were they concerned, look, they're, they're, for the Wall Street Journal editorial board, there are two big problems. One is somebody may kill Mitch McConnell. And the other is it's the distraction from their midterm message. They actually was like, Trump shouldn't be threatening Mitch McConnell's life. He should be out there campaigning for these Republicans. For deregulation. He be threatening a Democrat. So Rick Scott was also asked about Marjorie Taylor Greene's comments at this weekend's Trump rally in Michigan, where she said, I'm not going to mince words. Democrats want Republicans dead and they've already started the killings. Uh, New York Times just ran a piece on political violence where Susan Collins was quoted as saying, I wouldn't be surprised if a senator or House member were killed. Um, what do you guys think about that? Do you think it's important to highlight these threats? Is this a... Yeah, I mean, look, the, the fact that the Times had to do like a trend piece on this does show that we have the <laughs> memories of goldfish in politics. Like, remember the insurrection that happened last year? Yeah. But I mean, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene is a genuinely stupid person. She She's seized on lots of conspiracy theories that are wacky, the Jewish space lasers, uh, QAnon, like broken brain Facebook group stuff. The allegations here, just so people know, seem to be baseless. They're they're clearly baseless that there's some sort of broader fight against uh, Republicans from Democrats. But even these individual cases she's referencing, like there's a North Dakota man who was drunk, had mental health issues, hit someone with their car. There's uh, There's no evidence of a political motive. And this Michigan shooter says he was an accident and apparently he's a Republican or has voted in Republican primary. So just made up nonsense. It is incredibly dangerous, though, because we've seen how the great replacement theory has led to violence. We've seen uh, language about, quote unquote, white genocide and the way that has motivated some really disturbed people. And I think even an idiot like MTG 
can convince other people that they're at risk or under threat and inspire them to do things. And Trump has also been talking about this North Dakota incident at some of his rallies too. So I think this stuff is, is you should take it seriously. It scares me a lot. I do think there's also an asymmetric increase of like apocalyptic messaging on the Democratic side. There was a long, I think, post piece about that over the weekend. I'm not saying they're the same thing, but, you know, you can just see how the sides get driven further apart. And we've like, you know, back in the day after elections, you would have this moment where everyone, everyone involved says, OK, now we need to come together. Let's sort of like put these fights aside. That just has not happened in the last half decade or more. And it's scary. Love it. Right-wing political violence is rising. Right-wing political extremism is rising. We've already had a series of uh, mass shootings that were based in right-wing hate and misinformation and uh, uh, bigotry. There will probably be more. It is, I think, luck that a member of Congress wasn't killed on January 6th. It is luck that others haven't been killed so far. And... You know, Trump doesn't care. He views it as useful. It's why he enjoys the support of QAnon. He likes that he has the backings of the most radical and dangerous elements of the right wing fringe. And the fact that the even the supposedly serious parts of the Republican Party are too afraid to speak out against it means that all the signaling and all the rhetoric and all the extremism is sort of untempered and not being kind of and, and the elites of the Republican Party aren't doing enough to signal to the base and beyond that this is unacceptable and not part of their movement. And so, you know, they're playing with fire and and we live in a dangerous country and it's only going to get worse. Yeah. There's a lot of guns out there. I mean, well, I was going to say, not only are they not signaling that it's that it's unacceptable, um, the Center for American Progress did an analysis and identified 104 political ads from Republicans this cycle. Uh, that feature guns or weapons in the ads. We've talked about some of these on on this show. Wasn't before. Eric right into went rhino hunting yep. in one of his ads? Like kicked down the door searching yep. for rhinos. Or there's like whole families holding, you know, AK-47s in a Christmas card yeah. kind of thing. That bullshit. Um, look, I think we have to keep talking about this because it is easy to get numb to this, to forget about it. Like you said, we our, our memories are too short on this. Um, I was when I was talking to the voters in Pittsburgh for the wilderness. I asked about you know, what issues the media covers too much. And a lot of them talked about January 6th. And I said, well, are you are you not worried that something like that could happen again? And a couple of people said, well, it's just an isolated incident, right? Like it's just a, a one-off and it seems like that could happen anytime, but that's not like a real trend. And I sure think hope so. you read that, that New York Times story, it's like, you know, Pramila Jayapal has a, a guy with a gun outside of her house, like screaming things, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is, it, look, members of Congress have had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on security because of death threats. And it's more likely that you will be threatened if you're a person of color or a woman in elected office. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I think they had, Warnock had spent like $900,000 since 2021 on security. There's a plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. <laughs> Which her opponent, Tudor Dixon, recently joked about. Right. Yeah. And like, and then like, the 2018 midterms, even before January 6th, remember the pipe bombs yep. that were sent? Yep. To, I mean, this is, it's it's been, it, it, since 2016, specifically when Trump, uh, you know, came down that fucking escalator, it has been on the rise. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, the way this is, play, the way this works now is you have the the most extreme members of the Republican Party with platforms kind of spewing this stuff out into the world. And what is scary, what's dangerous about this is they kind of excite this radicalized base that reaches the the the, the subset of that radicalized base that's willing to uh, uh, do political violence, that's willing to take what people like MTG and Trump say to its logical conclusion. And then basically it puts our political system in those people's hands because at any moment those people can decide today's the day that we're going to have a violent episode in this country today's the day that i'm going to be in charge of the news like today's the day we're going to yeah. have a random act of violence and that kind of like stochastic terrorism that these people are inspiring and pumping into the world um means it just it it's destabilizing it's dangerous and um that's it. Also makes people not want to be involved in politics. Like, why on right. earth would you run for office to have some nut job show up at your house with a gun? You're trying to pass like universal health care. Yeah, and, and run for office, or just be like a nonpartisan election worker yeah. and get threats as yeah. well. You know.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-S-A. Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still about to head out. Love It or Leave It live on tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious... You'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. All right. Speaking of the election, uh, let's talk about the final month of the midterm campaign. Uh, Over the last few weeks, Republican candidates have started gaining on Democrats in the four big Senate races that could decide control. In Pennsylvania, John Fetterman's double-digit lead over Dr. Oz is down to a few points. In Georgia, Raphael Warnock is about two points ahead of Herschel Walker. In Nevada, Catherine Cortez Masto is trailing Adam Laxalt by about a point. And in Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes has lost his lead over Ron Johnson and is now trailing by about two points. Uh, Just for reference, Democrats need to win at least two of these races to hold the Senate. If they lose three, they lose the Senate, uh, most likely. Um, What do you guys think is happening here? Uh, Why are these Republican candidates doing better? Tommy? I think it's probably a a bunch of different factors. Like some of it is probably just kind of mean reversion. Like we live in a divided country. The numbers are going to move around, but ultimately these races are going to be tight. And, you know, even when these polls were showing the Fetterman team up 10, like they would be the first ones to tell you, we ain't winning this race by 10. You know, they're like, there's just no chance of that. Um, I do think some of the best polls that we saw over the summer came uh, when the Dobbs decision was fresh and when people were really focused on and concerned about abortion rights, you know, those headlines fade. Hopefully the concern about uh, that risk has not gone away, but it's out there. Uh, I, I think, you know, people are there's the, move, the news cycle has moved on. Um, people were, I think, probably feeling a little better about gas prices consistently falling. There was a better economic sentiment. And then, you know, Mitch McConnell's super PAC has just been hammering candidates for weeks now. Like they, They've been hitting them on crime. Uh, they're hitting Mandela Barnes on, on bail, uh, getting rid of cash bail. So that's probably hurting their approvals. Biden's numbers still aren't great. Like the right track, wrong track aren't great. The stock market was cratering until today, yeah. basically. So uh, we'll see. Um, I also have zero faith that the pollsters have figured out how to deal with these response bias issues, but that's another conversation. Right. And that, that could be what was going on with some of those polls in the summer as well after around the Dodds decision. Love it. What do you think's going on? Yeah. The other thing, the only, the only thing I'd add that Tommy missed was the Dobbs decision also was paired with a series of legislative victories for Biden. Uh, and together it was just a moment that I think Democrats, uh, felt really energized and like acutely focused and, you know, we always knew that there would be the Republicans will turn out their base. The Republicans will have a huge, huge number. And I think the polls are bearing that out now. So, I don't yeah, know. I think the challenge is that the, the fundamentals of this election are still, you know, I, every single voter I talk to uh, when I ask, like, what are the issues most concerning to you? Inflation. Right. And now gas prices are the most like sensitive measure of inflation. Mm-hmm. But. For, for most of these people I talked to, housing kept coming up. It was just yeah, like, I can't, really... I can't afford my rent. And I, I never think I'm, I'm I think I'm never going to be able to live on my own. I'm not going to be able to afford a home. And 
for people who don't follow politics closely, it's, uh, and I'm blaming the party in charge. Now, these people also brought up that they were angry about Dobbs, you know, but the thing that's always on their mind every single day is, can I make the rent? Can I pay my bills? And I think that's working against. Now, to go race by race, I'd say like in Pennsylvania, some of these polls, like you said, Tommy, they never thought they were going to win by 10, the Fetterman folks. Some of the polls just show basically Oz consolidating Republicans. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that's why he's sort of moving yeah. up. And that polls. was always going to happen. They're always going to come up. Now, have you guys heard about the the scandal rocking the polling nerd world? Which one? Go ahead. Give it to us. It has to do with the gang at Trafalgar. No. Apparently, someone on Twitter noticed that their response rates in their polls across states and demographics are always the same, which is just very weird because usually they vary from poll to poll or yeah. across different demographic groups. So, like, do you need 10,000 people to reach 100? Do you need to call 15,000 people to reach 100? Like, it can vary dramatically. And some outlet called uh, splitticket.org wrote it up, <laughs> and they found that the Trafalgar response rate was almost always identical. It was between 1.43 and 1.46. I don't know what that means at all, but that was not the case in their 2016 polling that everyone mocked. Huh. So... Big can we, scandal. Can we unskew some polls? We got to get some Nates can you to unskew, some unskew for us? this, whatever happened here. That is. Isn't the, isn't the real scandal that all of these pollsters now are trying to figure out how to poll, and so they get some terribly small response rate and then just adjust the numbers to some expectation or party registration or some model for what they think the electorate will look, at, look like? So in reality, the model is dictating the outcome of the poll and not the poll model yeah you know you're you're here yeah no matter what you're guessing on turnout at some point and that's what's gonna that's what's gonna uh sort of influence your poll more than anything else which is why we don't take individual polls polls are snapshots in time and they're not always all that accurate the trends of polls are usually uh more accurate and helpful and so and that's um, the conversation we're having this is that's the conversation we're noticing that the trend is getting a little trend. tight a we're little tight trends. Trend we're talking about good. trends but you're right. So I think a lot of money on crime attacks, especially that's been uh, hurting Fetterman and, uh, and Barnes a little bit. And then in Georgia, Georgia's a case where there's just very few swing voters left in that state. And uh, Raphael Warnock is going to have to hit. And same thing with Stacey Abrams. They're going to have to make sure that the electorate ends up being 30 percent black and that they get um, really high black turnout. And it was really hard to do that. And they shattered all kinds of records in the Senate runoff uh, in 2021. But to, to repeat that again is, is very, very tricky. Um, so that's going to be close. And then in Nevada, talk about like places where the pandemic hit the economy hard. Like Nevada is one of the hardest hit um, states because of the tourism industry there. And housing has been a disaster there for a long, long time. And so you have, you know, Cortez Masto sort of. Um, struggling as the incumbent there. Um, and there's also a lot of independent voters in Nevada as to also. And she's unfortunately not running against uh, someone like Mastriano or Oz or Ron Johnson, who on the on the on a daily basis or Herschel Walker that on a daily basis are saying something embarrassing, ridiculous, terrible. So it's just not getting the same level of attention. Yeah, no, not at all. Which is ridiculous because like Adam Laxalt uh, embraces the big lie and is a big Trump guy, but it's all relative at this point now. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. So well, it's, just, like, it's not yeah. the same level of gaffes coming out of, it's just not getting the same same level of attention. Well, in the, in the, the um, Federman folks have just done a good job of like making ads that are catchy, fun, go super viral. Now their their closing message seems to be focusing on the fact that Dr. Oz is a snake oil salesman and he sold like bogus miracle cures to people to make money for himself. And it folds into that broader message about how he can't represent Pennsylvania well because he does not care about you and doesn't even live anywhere near you. Should we, um, talk, should we talk about the dogs too? Apparently, listen, this guy uh, did a bunch of a, it's tough. evil testing on animals. It's, uh, it's the worst. I can't even read it. There was a whistleblower... Uh, it was there was a report today that a whistleblower basically said that like as part of the research uh, he was conducting, there were a lot of dogs that were terribly mistreated, and the details are horrific. Horrific. Yeah. yeah so he, when he was at Columbia, Columbia ended up t- cutting ties with Oz. Um, over like three hundred dogs were killed, and, and, and it's it, just it's it was hard to read the the story and violated the Animal Welfare Act. And obviously, like I don't want to be you know. Listen, it's gross. Don't read it. It's it's pretty bad. Support Fetterman. It's interesting to see watching Georgia too, because Warnock, I mean, I think he's clearly going to try to keep disqualifying Herschel Walker. 
And boy, if you need more information to do that, like I'm a little worried about you. But Walker, I was listening, I was reading um, some stuff in the AJC and Walker apparently seems to be worried about his lack of support from Republican voters. So he's kind of tacking to the right in these closing months. He said like the other day, he said, Jesus might not recognize you uh, when you get to heaven, if you're a transgender person, like crazy oh shit. He also endorsed Lindsey Graham's 15-week federal abortion ban. He's been criticizing Medicaid expansion, whereas Warnock is still taking a much more traditional campaign path. He's talking about bipartisanship, working with Ted Cruz on things, uh, Tommy Tuberville. The interesting thing that happened recently is the White House... Uh, the, the press secretary weighed into the question of whether the Atlanta Braves should change their name, which is like kicked up the completely predictable culture war debate that I think is probably not at all what Warnock or Stacey Abrams wants to be talking about in their closing weeks. So, you know, this thing is very much in flux. Yeah. Let me ask, what do you guys think Democratic candidates should be doing uh, to fight back right now, these Senate candidates? Like, how much are, are these final weeks about disqualifying your opponent versus making a positive case for yourself? Tommy, you brought up Warnock. Like when I was in Atlanta with those voters, um, I, I sat with a group of young black voters who uh, identified as moderate Democrats. And they had all heard all the bad shit about Herschel Walker. They're like, he's mm -hmm. crazy. <laughs> he's crazy. And then they're like, but I feel like all I hear from Warnock's campaign is how bad he is. And I don't know what Warnock would do. Yeah. And it's always this tough balance, right? Because you want people to know how bad Herschel Walker is, how bad Dr. Oz is, how bad all these candidates are. But at the same time, like, how do you balance that with, you know, the need to have a positive agenda? Love it. What do you think? Yeah, it's, it's also especially challenging when you're talking about Ron Johnson, when you're talking about Dr. Oz, when you're talking about uh, Herschel Walker, when it's not just that you obviously need to drive this negative message along with your own positive message for your campaign. It's that every day provides new fodder, <laughs> new negative fodder about your opponent that you do think is useful while yeah. you still have to do this other work of finding a way to get your positive message out there too. Like, you know, the Washington Post comes out with a story today, we were hearing this yesterday, walking through all the different ways Dr. Oz has spent years grifting and selling just completely debunked weight loss medicine, Alzheimer's medicine, cancer medicine, just to make money. You obviously want to drive that, but how do you get it back to what Fetterman will do on voting rights, what Fetterman wants to do to protect abortion access? I think that's, look, that's been the challenge for the last five years of dealing with these radicalized kind of goofy candidates, it's you have to find ways to drive your positive message too. Yeah, look, I, I think that they all are going to have, it's going to be case by case. They're all going to have research. They're all going to know what seems to work, what drives uh, Democratic voters, what might turn off Republican voters. They'll all probably know their own, you know, what they think is a win number, how many voters they need to turn out to win the election, how many voters they think their opponent needs to turn out or is currently on track to turn out. So you'll make decisions accordingly. I, I don't know the right balance. I do think it's just going to be, it's going to be case by case. But with someone like a Dr. Oz or Herschel Walker, you have a lot more to work with. So you're probably emphasizing that an awful lot, or at least, you know, the super PACs that swoop in in the last month of a campaign are going to do it for you. Yeah. I do think some of the ads that end up being most effective are not um, purely positive or purely negative, but like comparative ads. And so with someone like Dr. Oz, they have now done a fantastic job framing him as this out of touch weirdo who's mm -hmm. a grifter. And so you say that he's that and that and he's going to then, you know, vote for these policies in the Senate that are also out of touch. Um, whereas John Fetterman is going to fight for working people by doing X, Y and Z, yep, yep. you know, and I do think even in the latest poll uh, in Pennsylvania that has Fetterman only up by three, it was 45, 42. He still has an advantage, 5129, uh, for best understands concerns of Pennsylvanians, That's right? Good. Even though Oz now has an advantage on policies that will improve voters' economic circumstances, 3932. So it's interesting that they still think Fetterman's on their side, but they're, they, yeah. for some reason, they think that Oz. There's a little bit of a backlash to all the Jersey stuff, I think. People were like, I, you know, you talk about him being from Jersey all the time. What are you going to do for us? Like, okay, fair. But hey, you remember the Jersey thing. So yeah. it's an effective campaign strategy. Yeah, the other piece of it is that the Oz campaign is launching a bunch of negative attacks against Fetterman, some yeah. really unfair uh, kind of fear-mongering on crime, for example, and they have to find ways to push back on that without giving into that. And I think they've really tried, the Fetterman campaign has tried to really not be defensive, to kind of find ways to talk about Fetterman's record and what's, what he wants to do on criminal justice reform uh, while kind of brushing back some of the more outrageous uh, uh, you know, assertions that these, sort of, that these super PAC ads and these Oz ads are making. 
the person who did this best in 2020 was Warnock. Yeah. He, he had the, uh, we're back to dogs again. He had the ad of him like walking that little beagle. It wasn't actually his, but it worked really well. He did an ad where he was like, I don't eat pizza with a fork and knife or something. You know, it's just like kind of campy fun stuff being like, uh, they're going to try to demonize me, but I'm just a regular human being. I have a pitch. Here's a pitch. We get somebody who in scrubs kind of who's meant to look like Dr. Oz and we put them in front of a wheat thresher and have them put puppies into it. And then we oh, just God. have we just have Fetterman Holy next shit. to I the thresher. We gonna... Had the thresher just being like, I'll protect abortion access. <laughs> I'll I'll protect voting rights. Like I I believe in in decriminalizing marijuana, you know? Uh, I mean I think Fetterman it'll go campaign, I think, turn off the podcast. I think it'll go viral. I think it will. Is it, that I is, think it'll I go do, far. I, I agree with you on that. I, agree I mean, with you on that. remember, Sarah remember Palin when kind of did that. Remember when there was that ad where where um, where Paul Ryan pushed an old person off a cliff and they were really upset. <laughs> no. it, you know, you remember it. I do remember that. You remember it. Yeah, yeah. good one. <laughs> I think Dan. I think Dan created that ad. All right. On a potentially happier note, um, the Twitter ratios must be working because uh, one of the Nates is out with the take about how it's time to take Democrats' chances in the House seriously. Great. Now look at that. Uh, Terrific. Uh, <laughs> Nate Cohn argues that Republicans are still favored, but that redistricting didn't give them a significant structural advantage. And the limited House polling we do have shows extremely close races. So Democrats could pull it out with a few lucky breaks. Love it. What do you think of Nate's take? You buy it? First of all, so much of the take, the take's fine. I'm not, this is actually not, criti- I'm not critical of the take. It's, it's, it's a fine and, and, and um, uh, fulsome take. Let it exist. It's great. <laughs> I guess it's just sort of the, the whole point of it is saying that there's actually not that much polling of individual house races. And one of the points he makes in the piece is that we poll Senate races much more than we poll House races. Some of those Senate yeah. races have shown positive signs for Democrats. Therefore, if we had the same amount of House race polls, maybe we would be seeing the same positive signs, except none of us believe the Senate race polls. So I, all I take away from this article is we could win the House and Senate. We can lose them both. Anything beyond that is too specific to be to be predicted. Now's the time of year when everyone makes sure they've written articles uh, taking yeah. each side of an issue. So you can point to them after the fact. So I'd like to make sure we do that before November. Someone write that down. Um, what is very hard, I think, for all of us to political junkies to internalize because we pay such close attention to this stuff and the stakes are so high is that most of these elections could go either way. They could be decided by events that haven't happened yet. Uh, the outcome could be different if it was a week or two weeks earlier. Right. Like, I think 2016, if that presidential was a week after the Access Hollywood tape. I think Hillary Clinton would have been president, but it wasn't. And that's sort of like maddening to try to come to grips with. Uh, so we'll see. I, you know, like I'd... And, and most people aren't like us. They're not political news junkies who've made up their mind one way or the other, either which party they're voting for, which candidate they're voting for, or whether they're going to vote at all. My <laughs> biggest anxiety is around gas prices and the fact that yeah. the Saudis and OPEC are now cutting production to keep prices stable and elevated uh, and stopping the precipitous decline that we had seen because, you know, we're going into a recession. That is very worrisome to me. Yeah. Well, that's something that we can't control. Well, I'll tell you yeah. one thing. We're going to have to one thing. those guys. I, uh, uh, earlier today, uh, look, I'm in, I'm in Pennsylvania right now uh, talking to the people. And... Uh, Love it's at a diner, for those of you who can't He's see. at a Wawa, I think. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, I was, I was, uh, I was, I, I, I was talking to people at um, some sort of a market. I don't know where people buy produce or something. I don't know. It, for me, it comes fully in a salad already, so I don't know. I've never seen some of these vegetables. So, so you're a sweet pre-cut. No, no, no. Like this the, was the like a market. This is like a supermarket. Like it had oh, lots of okay. different vegetables, but separate little huh. areas for each one, not in like Sold a salad bar. Independently. Okay. Um, I never, and I was like, I didn't know what to do there. But, but I asked somebody a question, and they were basically they they hated Mastriano, but they were actually undecided about Fetterman versus Oz. And then I told them about the dog thing, huh. uh, and okay. that was effective. Uh, people do not like hearing about the dog thing. They don't. It's yeah. So Especially I'm going to say that the dog thing is going to really matter. Especially with the with, with like mo- normal people who don't pay close attention to politics. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they hear that, they're like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound good. I don't want that. I don't want that candidate. And some of the people that already like Fetterman, they said that the dog thing wasn't surprising to them about Dr. Oz, which I think is a really sad thing about Dr. Oz as a personal huh. brand. Because he kind of just reads as a sociopath. On the House issue, 
I thought that uh, just to get your head around what it takes for the Democrats to win the House, like the New York Times um, uh, in September 2nd had a very helpful interactive chart that was based on the Cook political ratings. So like if both parties win every district where they're currently favored, Democrats would have 191 seats, Republicans would have 213 and there would be 31 toss ups. So you need 218 to win the House, right? So in that scenario, Republicans only have to win five toss-ups. Democrats have to win 27. Now, is that possible? Well, that's basically what Republicans did in 2020. And of course, Democrats kept the House, but we were, uh, we were a little surprised that we didn't do better. Mm-hmm. So it's still, it's possible, but that just goes to show you how, how tricky it is for uh, Democrats to pull the inside straight here. But, yeah. but, but possible. Like, I, but possible. Yeah, of course, that's possible. But like another way to say that is... If it does turn out that we retain the Senate and the House, it will mean that there was an underlying trend that we just didn't see. Yeah, that like that there's so yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, look, I think Georgia is going to be sort of the most interesting example of this kind of happening simultaneously, where it's clear that Stacey Abrams is really betting on higher Democratic turnout, uh, a more motivated Democratic base based on the Dobbs decision, and Warnock is doing more of a. I'll work with all parties, kind of bipartisan approach to try to reach the middle. We'll see which works. We don't know. Yeah, they they, they need to do both. Both of them need to do both. Is what? It's, yeah, but you can kind answer. of emphasize one in the yeah. close, and, and yeah. it, clearly there's a distinction there. I do have a little candle I light that just says, uh, "This year, we don't see the Dobbs wave coming." That's the candle that I've lit. But I don't. I don't know. I don't know if it'll. I don't know if it's real. I hope so. I think the point of all this is. Because this is, this is going to be close, because there are so many undecided voters, because there's so many people undecided about voting, we can all make a difference here. Go to votesaveamerica.com, sign up, uh, grab a region, we'll put you to work, donating, volunteering, calling folks, texting yeah. folks. Like you said, I keep thinking of, you know, the Fetterman winning Pennsylvania by 10 points was never going to happen. Like all of these states have now been super close for many election cycles. Mm-hmm. They all come down to tens of thousands of votes, which means that everyone can have an impact in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And check out the Vote Save America page. If you click donate, there's lots of different ways you can put your money to work. You can go to secretaries of state and attorney generals, state legislators, the yeah. Senate, the House, voter protection, abortion funds. There's lots of different options out there. Then there's one that just goes to Tommy. Don't click yeah, that one. one. It's Don't my Venmo. Yeah. Just please click on that. All right. All right. When we come back, We'll talk to our old pal, Cody Keenan, about his new book, Grace. Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still, about to head out. Love It or Leave It Live on Tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com store to shop. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. On the pod today, our buddy, our pal, the former White House director of speechwriting and current author of a brand new book that's out today called Grace, President Obama and the 10 Days in the Battle for America, Cody Keenan. Welcome hey. to the pod. It's good to see you guys in the flesh. 
Barack nice Obama's you, greatest living chief speechwriter. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Right off the bat. It's weird interviewing you. It's just like people don't know this, but you're like the you're like the member of our, our friend group our, our that's family. just that, that people don't hear on the pod. I don't talk to anybody more than you guys, and I don't ever get to see you either. I These know. digs are amazing, by the way. Thank you. The, Thanks. The, Thank you. The first time I did the pod, it was like the fifth or sixth episode ever, and you were still renting radio space. We were yeah, we were some some random radio place. Now we're here. Now we're here. Look at this. All right. So you wrote this book. Still like Pompeii out there though. <laughs> so- <laughs> I gotta trick people to come in. <laughs> okay, it's not going to be a debate about remote work, but uh, <laughs> Cody, tell us about the premise of the book and and how you landed on uh, writing about these ten days in the White House of all the days you were there, which we should say eight years, was all eight years, just two thousand nine hundred twenty-two days. Yeah, okay, you're not you. So when you were counting, um, so Grace is about ten days in June twenty fifteen that her book ended by the massacre in Charleston um, in a black church and Barack Obama's eulogy in Charleston where he sang Amazing Grace. And in between, you also had this kind of extraordinary series of events where the Supreme Court was going to decide on Obamacare and whether or not millions of people got to keep their insurance and marriage equality, whether or not millions of people would be deemed second-class citizens or be able to get married like the rest of us. Um, After the shooting, the Confederate flag starts coming down over public spaces in the South. And all this happens over a span of 10 days. And it was like all these kind of great unanswered questions about America were coming to the fore in this exhausting and exhilarating way. And you were in there just writing so many versions of all of these speeches. (laughs) That's my favorite part. Like five speeches about one Supreme Court case, given all the different possibilities. Yeah, and we'd done this before. You were there in 2012 when we had to do this the first time. Uh, It was in front of the Supreme Court in a sham decision. Um, So we had to prepare speeches for what if the Supreme Court says, no, there's not a right to marriage equality. What if the Supreme Court says, no, all of you are losing your health insurance right away. And those are pretty bleak. Hmm. Um, And then in the background, we're deciding whether or not to write a eulogy. So your book made me deeply miss the White House, Barack Obama, all of our former colleagues. It also made me deeply grateful that I'm not a speechwriter anymore <laughs> because I was like tired reading what you went through that week. Weren't you tired, love it? Exa- I mean, Didn't just, it bring back the, memories of how like the, the, the drafts, all the people, the the committees of people giving you the fucking edits? It's like it's very yeah, it's very anxiety provoking, and just the the fact that it's never over till it's over. You never know what's going to happen when you hand it in. You know, just I wasn't a speechwriter. The thing that really jumps out at me, and I remember this from you guys, is the isolation. Because like we all went home at eight or nine o'clock at night, and you guys just sat there at your desks all night long until the thing was done, till the sun came up. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I'd go home. Tommy and I lived together for a few years, and well, I, I took Lovitz. Yeah, that's right. Him. Yeah, that's right. Um, when I get and, to Hollywood. <laughs> 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 and there are a few things more depressing when I'd be working at our dining table and Tommy's coming down in the morning because he's awake. You know, and I'm just like, he's just like, oh, no. Yeah. Oof. You're right. Uh, Need anything? It was yeah. rough. You develop a really healthy relationship with self-loathing as a speechwriter. It's a horrible feeling. It's a hard, <laughs> yeah. it's really reminding me of this. Hard, well, it's, it's, there is a thing, there is a part about being a speechwriter. Yeah, <laughs> we were White House speechwriters. <laughs> Listen, yeah, honestly, w- wouldn't take it off the resume. The, uh, <laughs> but but uh, there's this part of it that I think is hard to describe, which is politics is a lot of hard-nosed decisions. It's even policy. It's a lot of like, it's numbers, it's math, it's politics, it's, it's, it's 30 minute meetings. It's people moving really fast and trying to figure things out. And then there's this, then there's speech writing, which sits inside of it that doesn't exist in 30 minute increments. It's days of thinking. It's trying to find art and magic and kind of beauty in these moments. And nobody gives a fuck about it. (laughs) And everyone's like, well, this isn't as good as it should be. It's like, no, of course not. It's really hard. Yeah. That part sucks. It sucks. And and sometimes you don't come up with that art and beauty and magic. And everybody's, you know, we, we would shut our doors. And I, I stole something from John when he was chief speech writer at State of the Union time. He'd, we'd put like a skull on the door that means go away. I forgot <laughs> about know? that. We had a lot of, we had a lot, we ended up having a lot of stuff on the door to tell people do not come in. Yeah. And they it, all came in anyway. We had, there do was like a come. joy meter, you know. And <laughs> do not come. People, people would barge in anyway. <laughs> yeah. You, can you talk about the, tell the story in that part of the book where, you're just sitting there and you have to write the eulogy for Charleston and you have like basically just the heading and a blank page and you're trying, but everyone just keeps coming, coming into the office. There, there was a day, I think it was like day seven of the book. And you know, at the time you're not like, okay, today's day six. Like these, these days didn't really coalesce in my head till later, but, but there was this day where I was just trying to get to it and every five minutes someone would come in with something else. It was just, my assistant called it, Susanna called it a little box of interruptions <laughs> and you just can't focus and, until everyone's gone and the emails kind of slow to a trickle. And Cody, there was this fundamental tension about whether 
uh, President Obama was going to speak at the eulogy at all. You write pretty honestly about it, how he just didn't want to because he was so like cynical about having to give uh, eulogies in the wake of gun violence. And then he ultimately made the decision uh, to sing at this event. And you write in the book how you were like, Mr. President, Barry, I want to see you singing up there. You know, yeah. Can you talk about how you convinced him yeah. to, yeah, to exactly. spread his wings? Well, the, <laughs> as, as you said, we almost didn't do the eulogy at all because after, after Newtown in 2012, um, he kind of set his second term agenda aside to go after guns whatever way he could, whether background checks or whatnot. And that failed in the Senate. Well, it didn't just fail, it was blocked by Republicans. And after that, he said, you know, after, that was about as mad and cynical as I've ever seen him. And he said, I don't, what do I do the next time this happens? I don't want to give another eulogy after this. Cause it just, it like makes it seem like this is okay. And we just give a eulogy and move on. Um, Charleston was different. You kind of have to after that one, but, but he, he still didn't want to even six days afterwards. Why did he have to after that one? So you've got, you've got the first black president and you've got this racist slaughter, you know, carried out under the Confederate banner. And it just, it, it did sort of, we didn't have a hard and fast rule as to when he spoke after eulogies, but that one felt like it. So you had, there were some people in the White House pushing for it. He didn't want to uh, until he saw what the families did, which is they forgave the killer. Um, and that was powerful and that kind of brought him along. But but to get to the singing, he he had added the lyrics to Amazing Grace the night before the speech. Um, and he tore this speech up. You know, you, I gave him a draft and it was, it was the only time he's ever just drawn a line through two pages and oh rewrote God. them longhand, which is, that, is, that was, tough, that was yeah. tough. Um, and I described that in full detail in Grace, which is out today. <laughs> and so <laughs> that morning he, he goes out to the Rose Garden and gives a speech about marriage equality. The Supreme Court finds the right to it. There's these joyous scenes, but we're still mindful that we're about to go eulogize nine dead people. And he stands up on the helicopter and he goes, you know, if it feels right, I might sing it. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> you know, what, do you, what do you say to that? But he, you know, he had he he had a healthy um, ego about singing, which which is all because he sang Al Green at some fundraiser, know, and like everyone in the audience went insane. And so, he never let people stop hearing about that. Yeah, he was. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, he was so proud of himself. Yeah, he get, the, but if, if you're watching the eulogy, which which you should, it's great. Um, he pauses for 11 seconds before he starts singing, and there's only five of us on Earth who heard him say he was going to sing. So I asked him after, I was like, "What was with the pause? You know, was that for dramatic effect? Were you deciding?" He goes, "No, man. You know the thing about Amazing Grace." And I was like, "No." He goes, "You have to start really, really low, or by the time you get to a wretch like me, your voice cracks." He's like, "So I was just, I was like preparing." I find that E flat. Yeah, E flat. When I read that, I was like, has, had he tried to sing Amazing Grace before many times in public? Toothbrush I, mirror. I, I don't, I, I, look, I don't think that was the first time that day he'd sang it. I don't think he think just went out there. A few practice runs I think, in the, I think in the residence was, yeah, before? Yeah, I, I do think in the, in the, in the, in the echo of a, of a bathroom, you think <laughs> this is going to work. I can do this. Can I ask you all a question? Uh, one of my favorite parts of the book, Cody, you're talking about writing the State of the Union Address one year, which you all loved doing. It was my favorite. Incredibly rewarding. Oh, it's yeah, just the best. So much it. fun. Uh, you turn in like the best draft you've ever turned in. Obama calls you into his office to discuss it. The note included something about Miles Davis. Can you tell that story and how you felt about that guidance, whether it was helpful? Yeah, so it was, it was the third consecutive Christmas I ruined drafting a speech and, and I gave it to him eight days early and felt great about it. And, and he, I hear nothing after I give it to him, which is really frustrating because he always asks for an early draft, right? And then he doesn't get back to you. Mm. So his assistant calls me upstairs. I go up. He's sitting in the dining room off the Oval Office. And he goes, sit down. And I'm just like, oh, God. What, <laughs> am I going to have to like redo an 8,000-word speech? He's like, how you doing? I'm like, I'm, I'm fine. What is this? How's the speech? And he goes, well, I think we're in the best shape we've been eight days out. I'm like, great. But we can make it better. So he goes, you ever listen to Miles Davis? And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe. Why? He's like, so it's everything's in here, and I need some quiet moments. I need some spaces. You know what they say about Miles Davis? It's the notes you don't play. It's the silences. I'm like, whatever. Um, <laughs> so he goes, I want you to go home tonight, have a drink, listen to some Miles Davis, and find me the silences. And I was like, okay. First of all, I believe that that's I, 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 Lisa Simpson. Lisa Simpson says that on The Simpsons at a jazz show, and it's a way of her seeming pretentious. She goes, no, listen to the notes. He's not playing. <laughs> I was just quiet as right, any you time you're not in there that yeah. says just pause wait a here. second. Pause yeah. Here you go, yeah. boss. I added some pauses. <laughs> I'm not gonna say who it was, but there was someone like the day of that speech too who who staked out the bathroom in the ground floor of the West Wing, and as soon as I came out to go to the bathroom, jumped up and was like, Can we add this to the speech? Just, no. <laughs> um something that struck me is so there's the this big debate in the Oval Office over whether Obama should should speak at the at the eulogy. And at one point he goes on this rant about the Confederate flag 
still hanging up at the state capitol and he says it's not subtle black folks have to walk past it every day how would a jewish community feel if people hung a swastika somewhere the flag isn't an embrace of history that's a talking point come on people and then he looks at you and smirks and says obviously we shouldn't say that so i put it in the book but then like <laughs> it's so like reading it in 2022 my first reaction is like why why wouldn't you say that you know but it, it at the time i i get why he wouldn't have said that but it just it, it, it felt like, wow, we really have, I, I wonder what Obama's presidency would be like right now and how his discussions about race would be right now. Yeah. And can you talk about like why at the time he felt like he shouldn't say that? Yeah. I mean, it'd, it'd be impossible to know right now. Everything has changed so dramatically because of the Trump years. At the time, I mean, he would have gotten 12 red hens if he said that, right? All the <laughs> D.C. pearl clutchers would be like, oh, you can't. You can't equate the Confederate flag to a swastika. Why not? Yeah. You know, and, and his point, too, about the fact that the flag was over the Charleston State House, they put that up in the 1960s. Right. You know, that was Direct like a response to civil rights. Yeah, that was not just hanging on to, to the Civil War. But we always had to be mindful, even if it was frustrating, as to how different audiences would interpret what the first black president said. Yeah. You know, he had this he had to walk this tightrope that nobody else ever did. And one of the one of the things that ever made me that made me happiest was when Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote once for eight years. Barack Obama walked on ice and never fell. And it was just like a huge sigh of relief. Because that's exactly, that was, I mean, it was the best summation of what he had to go through on race from the moment he decided to step into politics until he left the White House. And, you know, if you were outside the White House or you were not him, you could criticize it or you could do whatever. But when, when you're that guy, when you're the first black president and you're doing it, you have to, you have to think about all those audiences and the people that you haven't brought along yet. That's and that's unsatisfying because we we were all you know young progressives and wanted to shout right and wrong from the rooftop, and to to tell yourself that you can't is a very frustrating thing to do. Yeah, I do. I do think all that's true. I do wonder how the Trump years have changed a certain way of thinking about decorum and not riling people up and things you can say outside of race on on marriage equality and a host of issues where there was an expectation that mostly falls to Democrats that there's certain places you can't go, certain truths you can't tell. And I do wonder if one of the, like I think back now and I wonder like if, if you knew someone like Trump was coming, uh, how much more honest could you have been? Like what, what, were the, what are the things that Trump opens up that, that we realized were rules we actually shouldn't have been following? Yeah, I, I think about that all the time, what I would do if we could go back and write differently, knowing what was coming. Um, but at the time, we just, we didn't have the luxury of doing that. There, there was almost, we were constrained a lot in ways that were frustrating and difficult. I will say that I think the whole concept of, of grace, the theme of the, uh, of the eulogy and the book still holds up today. I mean, to, to me, I mean, maybe we're just former Obama staffers who are... <laughs> <laughs> uh, who is still living in that time. But like, I, I do think even it's funny reading it after the Trump era or still in the midst of the era that we're in, it still feels like grace is uh, something that's that we're short on right now, but that we could probably use. Yeah. I mean, I feel like people still want people like this in the White House and everywhere in, in, in life. I have to, because what, what, what alternative is there? Yeah. Uh, I love in the book. I mean, look, we, so as we mentioned at the top, Cody and I lived together for several years. Um, three of us in a group house who paid like three grand a month, which made government salaries go a lot further. And then your now wife, Kristen, basically moved in. And I love how you talk about Kristen's job at the White House on the research team and how that rolled the occasional uh, grenade into your marriage. Can you tell that story a little bit? Yeah, Kristen was one of our fact checkers. That's that's how we met. She would fact check everything we wrote. And it was so frustrating. I already see Love It ready to tee off. I have nothing. I'm just trying to get something. <laughs> we kill her, <laughs> we kill ourselves on these drafts and then submit them. And, you know, these wonderful fact checkers, including my then girlfriend, will just send you back. Here are all the things you got wrong that you need to fix. And it's just relentlessly frustrating. And the fact that we ended up getting married, uh, I think, is a true testament to our love. <laughs> right. I remember, some, yeah. be honest, some of those fact checks were a little overly cautious. There was yeah. one of them. This is the one I always remember, which is um, I was writing a speech for President Obama to deliver at NASA. and Or, or maybe it was a, just a speech about science generally. But regardless, I made reference to the first photo of the Earth taken from uh, far away uh, uh, called Earthrise. And it, it was a photo taken after eight revolutions of the capsule in space, the, the capsule rotated eight times, and then the, the the astronaut took a photo, and the fact checker response was, "Well, the capsule had been facing away, 
which means that it had to spin eight and a half times, <laughs> which meant it was more than eight times. They're good. And I was like, I, really good. That, I was like, I hear you. <laughs> I hear what you're saying. I receive this. Uh, if we get in trouble, I'll take responsibility for not adding them more than eight. Who do you think? Who do you? Th which speechwriter do you guys think is that was the angriest in the uh, in the <laughs> responses Nobody to the fact checker? Was that the trip when you pissed off Buzz Aldrin? Uh, no, I believe that was a second okay. incident. <laughs> Got it. That was a separate trip where Buzz Aldrin was punching in the face. And in hindsight, honestly, my only regret is that I didn't go further because this is an anecdote about Buzz Aldrin not punching me in the face. How much right. better is an anecdote about Buzz Aldrin actually punching me in the face? Yeah, I would have loved the black guy from Buzz Aldrin. I'd, be, I'd speak it as eulogy. That'd be awesome. Punch me in the face, Buzz Aldrin. I'll come to you now. He's still around. You Don't were, you think? You were, yeah. <laughs> you, you were among the fact checkers' least favorites, but Rhodes has a special place in their hearts because he just wouldn't reply. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Ben would not. Ben would no. just not. Just ignore them. Um, you you write about always like feeling like you'll be exposed as a fraud yep. in the White House, which I think is like a feeling all of us had <laughs> every day in the White House. What am I doing here? Like, how did you how did you deal with that? I don't know that I ever did. I dealt with it by killing myself to like just get every draft as as good as I possibly could. Like, what right did we have to be there? Uh, what right did I have to be you know chief speechwriter for the first black president at, at thirty two years old? That's insane. Um, but I also think it is a testament to our White House that I think a lot of people had imposter syndrome and felt that way because oh, yeah. how many people do you think in the Trump White House had imposter syndrome? They all felt like they deserved to be there and you still look what that got us. Yeah. No, it is. A, it's a, it is. I think when you look around at some point, you look around at everyone else you're working with and you're like, we're, we're it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, That's it. There's no one else. <laughs> I actually think I disagree. I think the Trump people did know they were imposters and they were unfortunate. I think the issue is not that they didn't have imposter syndrome. I think they thought they were imposters and they were right. Like they were imposters and, and they, they were they care. were unqualified. Like take. They were the drugs of the dregs and they deep down they knew it. That's why they always took photos behind the Oval Office deck like tourists, you know? <laughs> they knew on some level that they were just visiting. Uh, and But that doesn't mean they won't be back. Just saying. You know what's on this point, one of the, one of the most important emails that, that Fav's ever sent me, and I don't know if I've ever told you this, was when we were all just struggling with, with speeches, you emailed me at midnight one night on a Saturday when you were working on the 2012 convention speech. Mm. And it was just this really... Uh, unique rant from you that you don't usually do. It's like, I can't do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I hate this. Oh, I, I got a bunch of them. struggling. <laughs> <laughs> I got a bunch of those from John. <laughs> and it was the first time I was like, oh my God, John feels this know, way man. too. I this can't is do this great. anymore. I can't do this. Yeah. yeah. And you the, only time you ever, the only time I you ever talked to me like that is when you took that edible that was too big and you called me in the middle of the night. Yeah. That was after the And I was like, you're not going to die. You're going to actually be fine. I was like, John's calling me? Oh, something's wrong. You're not having a heart attack. You're okay. No. Well, speech writing too is all about like how many people you have helping you. Like the in the beginning of the Obama campaign, when it was just me and Adam Frankel, even before we hired Rhodes, there was a time where I was like, I think I have to quit. I can't do this. There's too many speeches. There's like three sets of remarks a day. Like you just there's only so much you can write every day. And then once we got to the White House and we had a bigger team, it was it was a little bit better, mm -hmm. but it never fully goes away. No. Can I ask a question? Like you guys are all genuinely humble people, at least two thirds of you. Thanks, and <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, everyone everyone sees the feedback that comes in, right? You see the 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 praise, the the profiles of people. How did you guys deal with knowing that like there was part of a speech you could control? You could write something that's really great, great prose, but then sometimes there's just a moment that elevates whatever it is he says, whether it's the draft you wrote or the singing. Yeah, it's well, kind of out of your control, right? It's totally out of your control. You know, people ask, they're like, did you tell him to sing? I'm like, no, you don't write, sing here, sir. Um, what was always kind of frustrating was some of the best moments came from him. You know, we would try as hard as we could, and then he would take it to a higher place. I, I guess I always liked that and was always okay with it. Maybe because, like, when when I signed up to work for Barack Obama, he had just done the 2004 convention speech, one of the most famous convention speeches in history, wrote it himself, didn't think he needed a speechwriter. And I was like, I'll work for this guy, but like, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna be at his level because he's fucking Barack Obama. He's the one running for office. So it's like, if I can give him drafts that are like decent and he takes them to the next level, that'll be enough. And I always like, one of my favorite moments in every speechwriting process was actually getting back his edits. Now, if the edits came back and it was like a, a line through the paper or a come see me, that was not my favorite part. But when he really dug in and there'd just be like a ton of writing on the page, I would get excited because I'm like, all right, 
what did he do to this to make it really, really good? Yeah, you know? And it's a little bit of a cheat because I'm like, yeah, I guess that was my job, but whatever. He did it and it's great now. Yeah, there was a, there were the, the, the most satisfying, right, is like small edits throughout and then an arrow on the side of the page and you turn it over and there's just two paragraphs to go right before the end. And you're just like, oh, those sound just like him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, the way that I always felt about it was that like, and I think part of it is, actually I think it's part of it is that the like, you know, the brokenness of the people that go into politics, but it's a benefit, <laughs> which is that, you know, you're, you're, I always felt like both practically and emotionally, you're trying, you're not trying to please the world. You're trying to please the one person. Like, which is what you write about really their, well in the book. <laughs> like, their job is to know what the world needs. Their job is to have spoken to many more people than you ever could, been the person, been on the road, talked to everyone, had the life experience. They are supposed to know what goes out into the world. Your job is to give them the tools they need to get what they want. And so if you've done your job and gotten it through this ringer for them that they wouldn't have the time to do otherwise, even though uh, I feel like we all worked for people that if they had all the time in the world could write the speech themselves, but you're there to help them get what they need. If you've given them what they wanted and they know what people need, then you'll have done your job. And so like, I felt like and the the, the, the most satisfying part of a speech was not seeing it being delivered. It was the moment it was accepted as like, oh, great, this is done. That was better. That's that's what you were always playing for. I think that's a little bit of a problem in politics, the kind of the way inside of an organization you kind of become like, you know, you serve the principle. And I think that's for good and for ill. But in that case, I think that's the that's the that's the only way being a speechwriter is possible because you're not a president. You're not the person you're there to help them. Yeah, that, that was always my favorite moment in the speech process, too, when I, I would kill myself on a draft and just be a ball of stress. And then the second you send it to him, everything in my body would relax because I know now it's out of my hands. Yeah. Right. He might come back and tear it up. But but he I write about this in the book. This was the night before the eulogy. And he called me back to the White House at 10 p.m., which, you know, isn't good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and this after I've been kill, just been killing myself on this. And this this is when I go in and sit down with him and he drew just two lines through it. And I actually apologized to him because um, I really did feel like I'd let him down. But he he said kind of what you said, Lovett. He just, he walked back down the stairs and he, he put his hand on my shoulder, which was rare. And he said, listen, brother, we're collaborators. You gave me what I needed to work on this and get it done. And you know, when you've been thinking about this stuff and he's talking about race um, for 40 years, you'd know what you wanted to write too. And like that helped a lot just to get that. Just be like, you're not an abject failure, uh, only a partial failure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like look, the race speech in uh, in Philadelphia during the campaign when he like sent back his edits, which was like a huge rewrite of that speech. And it's like, I can no more disown uh, my pastor than I can my white grandmother. I'm like, I'm not going to give him that yeah, line. We're not gonna <laughs> I wasn't going to write that line for Barack Obama. Like, that's only something that he could do himself, you know? Um, all right. So what was harder, uh, sharing an office with Love It or sharing a house with Tommy? Mm. Oh, wow. <laughs> There we go. Giddy up. Uh, well, they were both they were both great joys. Love it. <clears throat> love it. Didn't, it comes. Love it didn't come in until noon. And when he did, <laughs> yes. And when he did, he'd be wearing shorts and riding his electric scooter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. First of all, through the EEOB. Through the two points about this. Basketball. One, I was riding electric scooter and e-bikes. You know, pedal assisted bikes. A decade before they were popular, I was mocked. Early adopter. Uh, right. And. So. I would wear a t-shirt and shorts because even on an electric scooter, I would just swamp the whole thing out, the whole system. But would you, you know, change out of the shorts and the t-shirt? Yes, you I would change the moment I had, if I oh, had sure. to leave the room again, Okay. I would wear the shorts and the t-shirts to, to cool down mm -hmm. until I had to leave again, then right. I would change. And again, at this point, it's noon. It's, well, it's at almost time to go home. At this, at this point, I'm like, <laughs> uh, I love it, he's working on this draft. Is he around? Do we have edits? The president wants to see us, is he Is he coming? Lola would ask, do I have to put a suit on to go to the bathroom? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> what if see me? I, I wasn't meant. Look, I, I honestly look. Most I, I wandered around that White House like a donor for, like, <laughs> for a year. For years, I can't believe they let me in here. I guess I paid. <laughs> Cody, you, you actually gave me great room, uh, advice about what to wear to work uh, as a roommate because on the day of the Bin Laden operation, yeah. our, our then other roommate Michael O'Neill for some reason, hosted a cooking class in our kitchen. And it was a shared kitchen and living room. And you and I were like, what the fuck is going on here? So we started watching a basketball game and just trying to like nurse a hangover. And the Celtics were on, so I was wearing a Celtics jersey. And I got called into the White House. And I was like, I think I can go in like this. Would anybody care? And you were like, you should absolutely not go in like that. 
Yeah, we didn't know you were going in to be informed about the Laden raid. No, we did not. It was good advice. I was there too, and and it was later on the Blackberry. It's like Rhodes was like, "Oh yeah, here's draft. Here's 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 a set of draft remarks." And I'm like, "Remarks for what?" I'm like, "Oh, the killing of Osama bin Laden." Okay, yeah, (laughs) I guess we're doing this now. Yeah, (laughs) thank God. Like it wasn't wearing a Larry Bird jersey. Tommy was a great roommate. I, I write, I have a, there's one of my favorite pages in the book is where I compare and contrast you and our other roommate, Michael O'Neill. Mm-hmm. There's a little much like Tommy's this monk, like like early to bed, early to rise, Tommy. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> he was though. Uh, excuse me, sir. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was a very I good was boy. a badass. <laughs> yeah. I spent some time there. Please. <laughs> the book is Grace, President Obama, and 10 days in the battle for America. Uh, Cody, you have written a fantastic I book. I love this book. Everyone... Pod Save America audience, you guys will absolutely love this book. Yeah. It is inspirational. It makes you hopeful about politics. It's like every, it's the antidote to everything that exists in politics right now. Yeah, read a chapter, um, then go knock some doors. So go uh, check it out. Buy it, uh, buy it today. I'm Cody. really, I'm really, really proud of it. And so thank you guys for having me on. Of course. Uh, thanks for coming Also, on. yeah, do we do plugs here? Uh, yeah, go plug whatever you want. We I'm, already just plugged the fuck out of the book. I'm on, <laughs> what, what, what are you looking for? No, I'm on, I'm on tour. Ad. I'm on tour. So <laughs> go see Cody, go see Cody on I'm tour. CodyKeenan.com. All the events are there. Tommy and I did an event in LA already. The whole V-Hive showed up. It was awesome. Um, <laughs> Fabs, and I, Fabs and I are going to be back here in LA next week at the LA Public Library right. for their loud lecture series. So please come on out. It's fun. That's the, Writing a book is great. Selling the book is not so great. But these live events are just awesome because you get to meet people who are, who are really, really wonderful. CodyKeenan.com. Come say hi. Thanks, Cody. Thanks, guys. Thanks to Cody for joining us today. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Love it. Good luck in those Pennsylvania diners. To have the Trafalgar gang. You bet. I'm, I'm out here. You know, I'm out here talking to people. And um, they're sick of this, uh, sick of all this partisanship. You and, uh, you, and, you and Selena Zito out there. <laughs> take me seriously. But don't take me literally. <laughs> Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producers are Olivia Martinez and Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineer the show. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.